We are in Revelation chapter 2 today, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to have our Good Friday service with five other churches. We've grown very close to these churches. Um, we've grown very close to Good News E-Free here in town. And um, I was just sharing uh, about another pastor of another church that I just look up to here locally. And a lot of us are involved. And in fact, many of us were there this week getting some advice. These churches that we fellowship with, uh, you know, we're all unique. What are some of their quirks, these other churches? What are some of their quirks? Would that be an appropriate conversation for us to have? What are some of their sins and shortcomings, these other congregations? I hope that would never be a conversation we would have. And yet, in today's text, that is the conversation. The sins and shortcomings of churches. And each church's sins and shortcomings, after being announced in this public letter, it says, blessed is he, the individual who reads the message to the churches. So any individual should read all the messages to all the churches and act accordingly. But could you imagine me as the pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church receiving a message from Jesus Christ publicly? Cornerstone Baptist Church in Pine Island. You know, you've got this right, you've got this right, you've got this other thing right, but you've got this other thing wrong, and if you don't fix it, I'm removing you. I'm removing you as pastor. I'm removing the congregation as a church. And this all took place in a shame-honor society. We aren't that. It's rather stunning, the passage that we're looking at today. Let's look at verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first, or your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, uh, yeah, yeah, this yet, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today and we see this stunning revelation of a church's faults, publicly, I pray, God, that we would not be so concerned about our privacy as we would about complying to your word and honoring you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just work in our hearts, help us to see our faults collectively as a church, individually. And Father, help us to examine ourselves for this very important first love. I pray, God, that we would have that. I pray that you would cause us, Father, to repent and to do the first works to the degree we may have left them. Bless us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our study, the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus Christ knows the works, and not just the works, the toil. Now, there's five churches. He says, I know your works. But this is the only one, I think, that he says, and your toil. That's a special word we'll talk about. And the suffering of the church in Ephesus. Verses 1 through 3. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, now we talked last week about how we are interpreting, there's options and how you understand this angel. We are understanding it to be a human messenger, um, perhaps 
the pastor of each of these seven churches, perhaps even going out to the island of Patmos to pick up this revelation and to give aid because prisoners did not get three square meals a day in prisons of antiquities. They relied on others to come and help them. So this, this could be just plain as dirt, uh, seven churches taking up a collection for their beloved apostle, taking it out to the island, and these seven messengers, each carrying gifts from the church, are going to receive this letter. Could be the pastors, could be just another representative from the church. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, the messenger of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we were told those lampstands are the seven churches last week. There are seven of them, by the way. A perfect number of completions. So we would take it, I would take it, that these seven churches are perfectly representative of all the churches in Asia Minor. It says, to the seven churches of Asia Minor. We could name seven more, and we did last week. I mean, there weren't just seven churches of Asia Minor, but... This is just a complete representation of the church's condition, I think, at this era. And perhaps at any time in history, we could find ourselves in one of the seven churches. Um, Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman kingdom, in all the Roman kingdom. It would be the largest of Asia Minor, but the fourth largest in the entire Roman kingdom. It was honored by Rome. I'd put that in scare quotes. It was honored to be uh, an imperial um, uh, worship city, a, a, a a city with an imperial temple. That would have been a great, great honor in that era. Um, It was also host to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the ancient temple of Artemis. And uh, this would have been a a temple that was 220 feet by 425 feet. Um, I don't know if that's as big as our temple to the Vikings up in Minneapolis, but uh, it's probably close. Um, There's scant remains of that temple today. Um, It had, uh, had, you could see some remains of some uh, pillars. There were 220 pillars in this temple. And uh, and, and each pillar was donated by a, a vassal king. So, you know, each king was assigned to provide one of the pillars. Um, It was just a tremendous work. Uh, In the city of Ephesus, there were 14 other deities that had houses of worship that that we know about, 14 false gods. So this is a thoroughly pagan city. Um, uh, There there was a great deal of opposition to Christianity, and we saw Paul had to get out of there at one point, and, and, and there's plenty of record of persecution, and the church is still enduring persecution in 95 AD. Uh, You know, uh, this would have been three or four decades later. Um, and, and as I said earlier, five of the churches of the seven churches, uh, Jesus Christ will say, I know your works to five of those churches. I'm just going to set this choir folder down here. Um, he'll say it, but only this one, do I think he mentions toil, um, uh, that, that I know your toil as well. And, and so this, this word toil, it has an interesting word history. It originally meant beatings with Accompanied wailing and crying, okay? And, and, uh, and then it evolved to, to, be, to mean the connotation of hard work to the point of sweat and perspiration. And, uh, and, and so if I were to talk to uh, Sam, if he were out doing his concrete work this, uh, in, in the heat of the summer, and he were to say, oh, yeah, I just took a beating this week under, under the hot sun. Th- that would be this word toil. I know your toil. It's just a deep, hard work. And the church was involved in a deep and hard work, and they were being patient. It says, your patient endurance. 
This is not easy service. This is not easy ministry in Ephesus. They're patiently enduring. It also says that they have... um, they, have, they would not bear with those who are evil in verse number two. You cannot bear those who are evil. Uh, the word evil there is not just bad, but it's reprehensible. It's somebody who knows better or ought to know better. Uh, the, word, the word bad here is used in, in broader uh, Greek literature for soldiers who are cowards, for students who are lazy. In Matthew 21, the tenants who um, murdered the son of the landowner uh, so that they maybe would get the inheritance when the tenant from afar died. Matthew 24, the servant who says, my master is delayed, therefore I'm going to behave differently. See, that is reprehensible. Somebody who knows better. And so the church in Ephesus, as, as they're dealing with these false teachers who ought to know better, they will not bear with them. They're being very, very careful. They exposed false apostles in verse number two. And and I think this is the same group when it says, you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. They exposed them as false apostles. They did not bear with them. The uh, church in Ephesus was destined to have this fight. And they, they got word of this from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. Before any of this went down, they got word. You're going to have an issue with false teachers in this church. Listen to Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Paul said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, imagine that at Cornerstone, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. This was what the church was to do. And so where do heresies arise from, from people coming in sometimes, from people within a congregation, heresies can arise in a local church. Why would heresies arise in a local church? Why would anybody do that? Why would any of us do that? Well, Timothy ministered in Ephesus, and Paul wrote to him about the same issue. He told them in person in Acts 20, they told the church, but Timothy's in Ephesus, and in 1 Timothy 3, He says to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion. There are some discussions that are vain that can take place in a local church. They are not fruitful. They wander far from this and deep into human philosophy. Well, let's read what it is here before we talk about today's too much. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law. Do you see that? Do you see the motivation? Desire? The lust of their hearts? They want to be a teacher of the law. Without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It is amazing to hear how confident people will contradict something and at the same time, disqualify themselves with an apparent ignorance of the issues. That, 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 that it, it just, it's just obvious. That's what's going on here. 
their arrogance is only outclassed by their ignorance. But they will be arrogant. And they will get up and they will speak and they will raise all kinds of issues that are very complicated. Very tricky to work through. Endless genealogies. Vain assertions. In spawning false teachers, I would, ask, I would ask you as a church to expect these complications. Anyone who places doctrine outside of the Bible you hold in your hands and forces you to trust their knowledge above what you can understand to be being taught in this Bible is a false teacher. Now that doesn't mean that there cannot be insights from outside the Bible. Somebody who knows their languages, oh, this could be an insight in helping you understand the depth and, and the nuance of what this Bible clearly teaches. There can be discussions about philosophy that might add some information. Even ancient culture and ancient philosophy that might help you understand and kind of elevate your understanding of what you already understand. But anytime somebody has you approaching the Word of God and doing a U-turn from what you formerly thought this Word taught... And they're asking you, well, you know, trust me that this is just, this, this involves study outside of the Bible and you need to make this U-turn with me. Your antenna should be up. When, that, when a teacher gets done teaching the Bible, you should walk away from saying, from the scriptures saying, yeah, I see, it really taught that. And, had, and, and you should have the knowledge that if I had read it more carefully before, I would have come to the same conclusion because it's right here. If it's not right here, your antenna should be up for false teaching, especially if they fancy themselves intellectual or clever. And you might be saying, wait a minute, Pastor, I think you seem to have somebody specific in mind here. I do. The pastor of the local church has a lot of extra training. And if I use that training to put the word of God up here where you can't reach it, bad illustration given my height, I know, but if I am four steps above you, and so if I use my training to put the Word of God up here where you can't reach it for yourself, you ought to be very, very suspicious that I am a false teacher. And especially, this is so true, especially coming out of seminary. You know, if you're ever in a church where you have a young pastor, you've got to wait for them to grow up a little bit because they come out of seminary just all excited about this doctrine, that doctrine, and they see it behind every bush. And, 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 and we feel coming out of seminary like we're George Washington on a grand stallion leading us into a revolution. The truth is more along this line. <laughs> We're riding a hobby horse, getting nowhere, too. You're just, you're back and forth. I wish I, you know, if anybody has a hobby horse, we'll put it in the choir thing. You do. We'll put it on the choir pedestal, and we'll make a meme for the internet, okay? <laughs> Pastors riding hobby horses. Do it on a Sunday morning. I'll have my suit on. We'll, we'll do that up. Anyway, but, but uh, yeah, so yeah, I do have somebody specifically in mind. That would be myself, that I need to be compliant to the Word of God. And not be using the, the extra hours I get in study, the, the blessings of education that you guys have helped me to acquire, to turn this into something where you'd walk away saying, wow, he's amazing. Rather, you'd say, yeah, that's what it says. That's what it says. If we ever are blessed, and I hope we are blessed in the next few years with an associate pastor, that would be the second person right behind the pastor you would want to watch. Men who teach the adult Sunday school class, I love you. We need you. You add so much to this church. You so compliment the preaching from this pulpit. It's different by design. And uh, I, I just, I would not want to minister without you by my side. But you need to watch yourselves. 
that it's clear. People we put with our youth and our children in Sunday school classes, we love them, we need them, we want them. But we need to be careful, especially if any of them are known for having a slightly different take than the church on certain issues. If they're novel, especially if it's to do with recreational drugs like alcohol or THC, something like that. Yeah, no, you know, no thank you. We don't need your novel idea. We don't want exciting teachers with new ideas because there's nothing new here. It's 2,000 years old plus. We want faithful teachers. We want compliance with the Word of God. People who do not impress us, they just unfold what is right here underneath our noses and help us to see that. Not, insi- not exciting, but insightful. That's what we're looking for. And Ephesus was able to expose this and to refute this, and they were faithful. It, it, was, it was not easy work. Uh, there's indications of fatigue here. There's indications of toil here. But how did it go? Verse 2, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I guarantee you testing someone who's walking into the middle of the church saying, I am somebody you should follow, that's not easy. That is not easy. That is not comfortable. That would not be a comfortable church gathering, would it? That would be very uncomfortable. Verse 6, look at verse 6, yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, false teachers, which I also hate. So kudos to Ephesus. We do not want to miss or minimize the importance of the church in Ephesus successfully defending against false teachers. Additionally, the grammar in verse number three makes it clear that the church was still exercising patience. Some would like to say, oh, this was the first generation of the church in 60 AD, but none of this was alive. This is a dead church by 95 AD. If you look at verse number three, I know you are enduring patiently, that present tense feeling, that continuous aspect. It's really there in the grammar of the original language. That's inaccurate. They are currently enduring patiently. So this is the current generation, the second generation church. They're doing some good things. Also, it says in verse number three, you are enduring patiently and bearing up. Do you see those words, for my name's sake? Those words, for my name's sake, that's attached to martyrs. That's attached to Jesus when he said, you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. These are good believers in in many respects. Uh, the, the, The good works are not behind them. They're current. That's the good news. And Jesus praises them for the good news. But now we get to this. Jesus rebukes the church for departing from its first love. And we'll see in our next point, he threatens to remove them as a result. This is a very serious charge. Being made publicly and clearly. Look at verse four. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first, which in the NASB or other versions you might see, you have abandoned your first love. That would be, as I understand it, the most accurate translation. Um, What is this first love? Well, what does it involve? What's missing? If you look at verse 5, you're going to see the remedy for this missing first love. And, and so I think we can maybe infer more about this first love by the remedy. Uh, verse 5 says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. That's the, that's the, that's the prescription here. 
remember what you used to do from where you've fallen, repent, and do what you used to to do. So this lack of a first love is causing a lack of action at some level. So I don't think it's wrong to infer that from, the, uh, from that. So in other words, missing love yields missing works. There are three different interpretations. By the way, if uh, Jason or somebody could just check the uh, HVAC for me. It seems a little warm in here to me. Um, uh, there are three interpretations um, for this uh, missing this first love. Uh, one is my interpretation that they lost their first love, they haven't lost all love. Um, oh, yeah, this is the, uh, I'm sorry, this is the ESV versus the NASV. Uh, you had it first. I don't see that in the original language. I think you, you have left your first love. That seems to be the, uh, the best translation as I can see it. Anyway, um, so the, the three interpretations, you've lost your first love, you haven't lost all love. That's kind of where I fall. The other interpretation is you lack first love, therefore you lack perseverance of the saints. You are unsaved. Okay, as a church, you are unsaved. Um, The the, the third view is that this is a second-generation church, and just as the early church at Ephesus probably didn't have 100% saved membership, 100% true Christians, true believers in Jesus, uh, even so now they don't have 100% true membership. In fact, it's a majority of unsaved membership to the point where the church is becoming illegitimate because they have too many unsaved members. I don't take either of those two views. I, I just think these are believers uh, that, that, uh, that have, uh, have this, uh, uh, this, this lack of love. My application is this. You and I need to tend to our love of God and our love of one another. We need to make sure our love is yielding good works, that we do the things that Ephesus did at the beginning of the relationship with Christ. We need to be engaged in good, loving works. And now, this is called your first love. How do we interpret the word first? Well, you could say it's first in time. And that's kind of where the ESV went when it said the love you had at the first. They're kind of trying to help us to say this is the love they had early on. That would be kind of like a couple who's been together a long time. and I just miss how the love was when we were first together. Um, the other first could be a term of priority. This is first in the sense that it is foundational. When, when Paul talks about the, um, when, when he talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I'm going to talk to you as a, of, about this as a matter of first importance. In other words, it's a fundamental of faith. It's, it's, it's foundational. And so I take it to be kind of both. That Yeah, this was the foundational love that they had at the first, but it is foundational. Uh, and, and you need to have this foundational love right now. John wrote a great deal about love. If you turn to 1 John chapter 4, I want you to follow along with me if you have your Bibles or uh, swipe to 1 John chapter 4. As you're doing that, John chapter 13, Jesus records, uh, uh, John records Jesus' words about love. In John chapter 13, he said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How important is love? Among the church, the family of God. Let me tell you something. The, the New Testament emphasizes love of believers even more so than love of the lost. Love of the lost is an imperative. It's required. But there's a lot more ink in the New Testament devoted to us loving one another. It is a priority. And a tool of evangelism. When they come in and see us, they will see and believe because of our love for one another. Anyway, First John chapter 4, verse 7. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So that sounds pretty foundational in its priority. Anyone who does not love, verse 8, I mean 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the pleasing gift uh, to, you know, to a God is what a propitiation was in, in broader worship. This is the pleasing gift to God Almighty for our sins. The death of Jesus Christ was a death of atonement. It appeased God's wrath against our sins. That's what love is. God sending his son to do that. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Drop down to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not know, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is a foundational love. Uh, you can't say I love Jesus, but I really hate Christians. <laughs> They're just a bunch of losers, a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, you can't say that and be accurate. To the degree you do not love God's children, you do not love him. Imperfect though they be, because imperfect though you be, you are to be our object of love as well. Now, we might empathize for a church that is strong in doctrine and fighting false doctrine. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? You've got somebody who claims to be an apostle. This is going to be somebody who's fairly eloquent, knows how to use their tongue. They know some things. They know how to spin a good yarn. They know how to get a big, confusing, you know, they know how to plow over your pastor with the philosophies and all the extra-biblical things they're going to throw so, you know, those had to be some pretty hard, contentious meetings. And so it could be that when you have to contend for the faith, that you maybe become a little more contentious as a church. And, and Jesus Christ said that is not acceptable. Uh, truth is, a, is an imperative. It is a requirement. But so is love. You have to be a loving church. Conversely, there might have been something competing for the Ephesians' love. Can you imagine what could draw us away from God and cause us to love something other than God? You cannot love God and mammon, the love of money. Is there any indication that this was going to be a problem in Ephesus? Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Timothy was in Ephesus. And this issue was, this warning was issued some 30 years earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 6. By the way, it's also interesting that this warning against the love of money does take place in the same context as false teachings. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. Dropping down to verse number 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
There, there just seems to be maybe an arrogance that comes with having wealth. Charge the rich. Don't be haughty. Don't take God's blessing and how he has gifted you and think that you're better than someone else. Nor set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. How many people have we seen accumulate just that perfect number and then life falls apart in other ways? We do not set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. See, there's a competition here. What are you going to hope in? Are you going to hope in your money? Or are you going to hope in your God? Are you going to love your money? Or are you going to love your God? But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 18. They are to do good. This is speaking to the rich in this present age. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. Remember what John is saying? Do the works that you did at the beginning. The rich are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Be careful to guard your heart against a love of money. A love of money will yield lovelessness toward Christ and lovelessness toward Christians. One final application I'd make is this. Do not treat love as reciprocity. Love is not a quid pro quo. Love is not even paying it forward in the sense that you're going to pay it forward to society and help others so that when you have a need, somebody will help you. It could very well be that God just lets you suffer through your need and nobody comes to your help except for God helping you to endure. Our love is not a quid pro quo. It's not paying it forward. It's a response of love of God. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, is what the text says. So if you go through this life overlooked, I mean, you're the one who's always showing love. You're the one who's always showing difference. If that's just your whole life and nobody ever shows you love, nobody ever shows you difference, and yet you do so out of love of God, guess what? You win. When we stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, your reward will be manifold above what you gave or what you suffered. And you win. You will be highly rewarded in our God's presence because you did not love as a quid pro quo. You loved out of your love for God. So if you are overlooked, I hope you're not, especially in this church. I hope you sense love all around. It should be all around. But if you are neglected and you are faithful and loving at the throne of Jesus when he judges you have won. You will be rewarded. You will receive a well done. As I understand it, the Ephesians here were threatened with having their candlestick removed. They actually did continue for centuries. The, the Ephesian church hosted a, uh, an important meeting in the early part of the 5th century A.D. It was also during that century that the city of Ephesus started its decline. A thousand years later, in the 14th century A.D., uh, the Turks exported the last of the citizens. That's why Ephesus is just ruins um, as we know it. Also, Ephesus was a, uh, a coastal city. It was a, a seaport. Uh, it had a harbor. And um, that harbor was surrounded by mountains. And even in antiquities, the silt from the mountains uh, were challenged to keep that harbor open. And today, it's a six-mile walk on dry land to get from the sea to Ephesus. This whole coastland is just sand now. But uh, the city, I say all that to say this, the city did, did survive and, and the church did survive for centuries. 
Nonetheless, here was the threatened consequence of neglecting first love. A judgmental visit from Jesus Christ, and he himself will remove your candlestick. Remove the church from its place. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do. Now, there's three imperative verbs. Remember, repent, and do. And, and that's something for all of us. Remember what the Word of God says. Remember the love you had at the first. Repent of what you are doing now that is neglecting to obey God's Word. And do. Get into action and obey God Almighty. Repent, remember, repent, and do the works that you did at the first. If not, verse 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And then he does add yet another good thing. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So we have a serious charge against Jesus Christ, a, a serious threat. And look at the church is hating evil. The church is judging false teachers, toiling and suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that enough? No. Without love, Jesus says, I'm going to remove you. I am going to remove you from your place. It drives home the absolute necessity that we love God and that we love one another. Now, he also adds, you, I have this, you know, you do have this in your favor. You hate the, word, the, the, the uh, teaching of the Nicolaitans. You see that in verse number six, the works of the Nicolaitans. Not just the teachings, but the works that result. Um, there's... Uh, our best understanding of the Nicolaitans, they had uh, somewhat of a Greek dualistic view, mind, uh, spirit versus body. Spirit is eternal, spirit is religious, spirit is important, body is not, what you do with the body doesn't matter. And so therefore they had this licentiousness, they had this, this, uh, this, uh, this ability to just go and do whatever they wanted sexually, sinfully, gluttony, drunkenness, they could do all that because it's just the body. In my heart and my spirit, I love God. And so they had this false teaching, and, and the church rejected that. And that's speculation, but that's our best understanding of it. The church rejected that wisely. Also, there's a lot of ancient ink spent on who started this error. Um, it may or may not be true, but you have several names, um, that, uh, including Irenaeus, um, Hippolytus, Dorotheus of Tyre, Jerome, Augustine, Eusebius, and others that say this all started with the deacon in Jerusalem named Nicholas. Uh, Nicholas of, uh, he was called Nicholas of Antioch in the seven that were chosen to serve. And we call them deacons. The noun deacon isn't there, but the verb for what a deacon does is there. And, uh, and, and the, the report is everything from he founded this false doctrine to maybe he misunderstood Paul when Paul talked about how we uh, neglect the body. And he took that as a Greek dualism, kind of a asceticism approach to the Christian life. And then that, off of that, grew this offshoot that went into a complete dualism where you could do whatever you wanted with the body. So there's a lot of theories about how that happened. And there's a lot of ink pointing to this one man, this one deacon in the church in Jerusalem. Men, guard your teaching. Be very careful. Guard your teaching. Women too. Teaching Sunday school. To our children, guard your teaching. Be very careful with truth. Be very careful with doctrine. Well, it's commendable that this church hates the things that God hates. As David said, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Psalm 139. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. 
So Jesus Christ commends him, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's a good thing. The message ends with an admonition to any individual. It's in the singular. Now, one individual cannot be a member of all seven churches. Okay? Uh, But any individual who reads what Jesus Christ has written to the church is, not just his church, but to the church is, is encouraged to learn and encouraged with a reward. And I believe this will happen with all seven of the churches, the messages from the seven churches. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the first thing I note, any individual. These, these letters were meant to be read by everybody in, that, in Asia Minor in that day. I believe that blessing is still to us, that there is a blessing when you read and obey and, and do what the Word of God says here. Remember, repent, do. Um, the other thing is that I would see these promises as we go through the seven churches as applying to all churches and, and all time in this era. Uh, we'll see how that works, but that's going to be my, my approach to this. You've got this tree of life. Uh, what is the tree of life? Uh, it, it's clearly a symbol in the book of Revelation, and how do we interpret symbols? Well, number one, we look in the immediate context. Is there any explanation for this tree of life that further tells us, is this a literal tree or is this all metaphor? There's nothing. We could go to the broader context of Scripture, which is what we're commanded to do. If you go to Revelation chapter 22, Revelation chapter 22, we'll look there real quick. We'll see the tree of life. While you're going to Revelation 22, I'll read Genesis 2, verse number 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. That is a literal tree there. In Verse number 22 of Genesis 2, the Lord said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, we're going to guard it with an angel and put him outside. We're going to keep him away from this, lest he takes from it and eats forever. So it seems to be a literal tree in Genesis 2 from which you would eat and gain eternal life, or somehow God used that in, in that manner. So we go to Revelation chapter 22. Verse number one, then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, Jerusalem, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So that sounds like a, a, a tree of life that yields fruit every month of the year, 12 fruits, 12 different months, all year round. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have right to the tree of life. Verse number 19, if anyone takes away from the words of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life. So looking at the broader context, I would say this is a restoration of paradise. This is the literal tree of life showing up again. And it gives fruit every month. Does that mean we have to eat from it every month to stay alive for all of eternity? I don't know. What problem would you have with that? Does it seem like we're a little too dependent on God at that point for eternal life? I don't see anybody coming up there on day number 30. Oh, I'm about to die. Oh, oh, I got the tree of life. Thank goodness I did not die for all of eternity, right? I, I don't see it being that way. 
But I do see there being somewhat of a metaphor of dependence of, on God every month for all of eternity, for eternal life. See, there's something rebellious in us that we want to shake that. Wait a minute. I thought I got a hall pass and I have the right to eternal life and I don't have to check in with God anymore. I don't have to depend on him anymore. See, there's a little bit of rebellion in us where we're going to be our own gods. We're going to be given eternal life and a relationship of dependence? No, 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 no. Not interested in that. Don't you understand your God is worthy of your faith now and in eternity? I don't know how the tree of life is going to work. I take it as a literal tree. I take it as we're literally going to be eat from it. How that, eating from it, how that works, I have no idea beyond that. That's just how I take it. What is the harm in doing so? Perhaps I'm portraying too much of a continuing, ongoing dependence on God throughout all of eternity. I don't think so. And perhaps it all is, is all just metaphor that God just gives you eternal life and this literal tree you don't literally have to eat from. I don't know, but I'm going to take it literally because I need to keep my heart focused on God, that I am dependent on God for every day of life, now and in and through eternity. I'm, I'm comfortable in his hands forever. I hope you are too. So the church in Ephesus had notable good works, yet their condemnation highlights the utter importance that a local church loves God, loves one another, and lovingly seeks to love the lost in outreach. What a shocker this letter would have been to their culture. <laughs> Written publicly for all to see, airing our dirty laundry, God's opinion of this local church, not just its quirks, its sin, and its impending removal as a church. Love will never be fully checked off of your to-do list. By the way, we do have a very loving church. I, I have to say, I just, I see it, I see stuff, and I'm like, I'm just so thankful for your love for one another. And, and, and you know, I'm preaching to the choir uh, in, in the vast majority of the, of the pew seats this morning. I am preaching to the choir. You people love one another for the name of Jesus Christ. Um, but understand that love will never be checked off of your to-do list. <laughs> right? It's never, okay, done, moving on to other things in the Christian life. It is always something you tend to. We want to be careful to do the good things that the Ephesians did, preserving truth, suffering for Christ, watchful for false doctrine and false direction. But may God give us in all of that a primary love for him and a love for his, his people that motivates us to loving action. And may our actions be of such sacrifice that at least in a small fraction they reflect the love of Jesus who came to become creature and to die for a creature. Uh, this tremendous love of Jesus, it's, 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 it's infinite. We'll never achieve that. But may our good works be at least a little reflection, a, a small reflection of that great love of Jesus Christ. May we glorify him. 